Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. I am really looking forward to today's conversation with Jeannie McMains. We spent a lot more time talking about the things that matter. When we think about what our impact will be of our life, it's going to be how our existence, our decisions, our resources, positively or negatively, impacted the people that we care about and the communities that we live in. We explore some really interesting definitions or understandings of wealth within intergenerational high net worth families. And finally, we also talk kind of brass tacks, some specific strategies, some specific entity types like donor advised funds or private foundations or supporting organizations, and how these tools can be used to create new opportunities planning wise to manage the competing priorities that you're looking to accomplish, giving goals or estate tax minimization, or kind of the glue to keep your family together when you're not around anymore. So it's a phenomenal conversation. Jeannie is wonderful at what she does. And let's jump into today's conversation with Jeannie McMains. Jeannie McMains, welcome to Success at Last. I'm super excited for our conversation today. I've heard you speak countless times now. And each and every time I heard you speak or share, I was thinking to myself, I need to get her in front of our community. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day for a conversation with us about generosity and some of the planning opportunities that are uniquely available to us right now in this moment in time in the midst of all the uncertainty here in 2020. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Jared. It's great to be here with you today. Awesome. Well, so I'm intimately familiar with all the incredible planning work that you do with a lot of our shared clients, but let's start with a conversation about kind of who you are professionally and kind of what led you to this moment in time where you were doing some incredible complex gift and strategies to support people's generosity goals. What was the professional experience that led you to today? That's a great question. So my background, as you know, is one in the area of I'm an attorney and I've always focused around finance and tax matters in what I would call situations that families are experiencing with money changing hands. So primarily business succession, family wealth transfer and multi-generational family philanthropy. So, you know, tax, finance and complex relationships are diagram with which the cross-section of my professional experience lies. Excellent. So you are now working for National Christian Foundation, one of the largest donor-advised funds in the country that actually has roots kind of at the infancy of what the donor-advised fund was and has become now. So I think some historical context to the donor-advised fund, and then I guess kind of contextually the size an influence that NCF has nationally would would also be interesting at this moment. Sure. So yeah, after about a decade of 
practicing in private practice with affluent families. I was blessed to join National Christian Foundation 15 years ago. So NCF was created back in 1982, Jared. So it's been a while, almost 40 years. And by Larry Burkett, Ron Blue, and an attorney in the Southeast, well-known Terry Parker. And as you mentioned, NCF was one of the early, what we would call a national community foundation around the Donor Advice Fund, which is a fantastic philanthropic giving tool that families have available to them. We now have 30 offices around the country. Over $11.6 billion of granting has gone out of NCF to over 63 charities worldwide. That's something that we're really excited about. That's staggering. So say, say that a number again, over $11 billion towards charity. Dollars out. Yeah, yeah, not in our doors, but out the doors to 63,000 charities around the globe. Wow. That's, again, staggering. We serve a community of passionate givers, and that's super exciting. That is super exciting. Yeah. When we go through kind of the planning process, whether it's financial planning or tax planning, business planning, you know, there's all kinds of tactics and strategies around what to do or how to do it. But those are always preceded by the questions that help us better understand why somebody's trying to create an outcome. And so to the extent we can discover those values in terms of how people want money to show up now, tomorrow, and, and more importantly, when they're not here. And what a common theme is, is this sense of purpose, purposeful profits, conscientious capitalism. And so certainly there's some dollars that we need to spend on ourselves and our family's experiences, but the opportunity to connect it to charities or change that we want to be a participant in is pretty cool. It really is. And the joy that we see in the eyes and in the words of the givers that are having an impact within the causes they care about, that's what makes it all worth it. I mean, seriously. Yeah. So I'm, I think another interesting thing about your background to maybe create a connection with our community is we serve business owners and you were a business owner before this. So how has that influenced your capacity to better understand the clients that you're serving in the complex gift arena? Oh, that's a fun question. Yeah, I've owned three S corporations in my life. One of them was a law firm. Another one was kind of a, yeah, kind of around the financial services industry. But we started them from the ground up, Jared. So they have that entrepreneurial spirit and to understand the passion that yeah. someone puts into their company and the time and to some degree, a little bit of their identity fingerprint upon it. Oh, absolutely. It's a wonderful thing. But my journey too, Jared, I don't know if that'll resonate with anybody on the line today, but listening today. Somewhere along my journey, um, without me realizing it, my companies slipped into becoming, you know, my identity and the source of my security and to a large degree, the author of my days. And when the years started going by, I began to realize that there had become sort of a trajectory shift in my heart. And so part of my story was trying to keep those things that I wanted to be very purposeful about and still being passionate about my company and being a wise steward but also making sure that I knew that my legacy story was something that was larger than just my company's strategic plan and balance sheet. Absolutely. Those are some deep, deep waters right there. When you start kind of really peeling the onion on how do we define ourselves, it's very challenging to not let what we spend eight, 10 or more hours per day doing. You know, as an entrepreneur, it's clearly more than 10 hours a day. It's a <laughs> child almost. And it's, it's a Siamese twin. It kind of becomes part of you. And it's, difficult to cleave that away. So I think what's interesting though, is inevitably there's this pursuit of purpose after you've been successful professionally to 
well, what else? What else can I do with this aptitude that I have? And so what's interesting is how, even though donor advice funds have been around for as long as they have, not a lot of people really know about them. And I love them as a planning tool. And I find myself regularly talking to clients about how we can connect wealth and values through this instrument known as a donor advised fund and all the incredible planning benefits that it offers us. But you're the attorney here. So let's, let's pass the baton to you. Talk to me about donor advised fund. And then maybe after that, compare and contrast. I mean, they're both wonderful tools, but they're different tools. So many people show up and say, maybe I should start a foundation. And that might be the right answer, but many times it's not. So let's start with the donor advised fund. Like, at a high level, what is a donor advised fund and some of the things that the listeners should know about? Yeah, a donor advised fund is essentially an account inside a public charity for which people who make contributions to that account can retain the right, the advisory privilege to make requests for checks to go out to their favorite charities. In the legal world, Jared, we call that grants, right? Yep. So I can yeah. set up an account at the donor advice fund administrator and I can make contributions. And then within CF, I can go right on my phone and just click and request checks go out to the charities that I love to support. And then, yeah, that's a little bit about how a donor advice fund works. I call it a give, grow, grant. For some a little of your alliteration. I'm sure that oh, didn't yeah, happen. Yeah, I got to fit some of that in there. But Yeah, that didn't happen by accident. Nice work. No, no, no. Clearly, we've, we've said that a few times. G3, <laughs> no, but, I like it. Why is that an important point? <laughs> Other than the fact that it sounded good, Jared. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure the listeners knew it. They're like, wow. Yeah. Well, it's got her stuff dialed out. in. Yeah, they're impressed. Yeah. <laughs> so it unbuckles the act of giving from the timing. And so it really allows givers to give when it makes the most sense. Their heart is stirred or it's a tax smart event or it's part of a methodical disciplined value in their life. They set it aside. They can grow their contribution inside the donor advice fund, typically tax-free. So if yep. it's an investment portfolio in there or real estate or many types of assets can grow tax-free or significantly tax-leveraged. And then you capture those ongoing savings. And then you can send requests that checks go out to your favorite charities when you're so moved or when you have the time to. So you can unbuckle the act of giving, which is frequently driven by factors from the deliberate, for folks of faith, prayerful determination on where you want those grants to go. Yeah, that's a huge benefit for people because a lot of the time you might have abnormalities to your income, right? There could be an event or something, an abnormality from an income standpoint, thus a tax planning perspective, yeah. this kind of black swan. Hopefully it's yeah. a good one, right? But it allows well, Jared, us to, to, this year, right? Yeah, to capture. There are businesses that are in sectors. I'm getting calls. I know you're getting calls with companies that happen to be in a sector and they're 6, 10, 20x yeah. in business volume. While unfortunately, some businesses are also really kind of stutter stepping. It's a very totally. disruptive time. Yeah. So that value of being able to make a gift today for tax purposes, but not the requirement to make a charitable decision today. That's right. The opportunity to make the deduction in 2020, but giving in 2021 and beyond. So that's super helpful. I also like the simplification, right? Rather than at the end of the year having to track down 10, 15, 20 receipts, it's one receipt. And so from a record keeping standpoint, it's nice to just be able to track down one receipt yes. for one year versus yeah. having to, a lot of the time, you're trying to support a smaller charity and they may or may not have sent you a receipt in the first place. That's right. And 
having been a business owner, as you mentioned, a lot of times I didn't know what my pass-through income was going to be until we start talking to the folks like at the lab to kind of say, what's my tax liability? What's my net income going to look like this year? Yeah. And then it was always a hurry up for me as a person who had a methodical discipline around my giving as a percentage of AGI, it was a hurry up to do a bunch of giving decisions at the end of the year. Yeah. Sometimes it's it's interesting as you become more affluent, there's an inherent complexity that occurs, right? So with the curse of, of affluence is often complexity. So as a planner, we're also in the midst of trying to navigate that. We're pursuing essentialism at times, kind of the active pursuit of less but better. And so the donor advice fund has been a helpful tool. But with more money, often you have more choices. But we know from behavioral finance that there's the paradox of choice that you can kind of get paralyzed with too many choices, especially if it's not within your circle of competence. And so I once heard you say, you can spend money one of three ways. You can spend it on stuff, experiences, and impact. And I borrowed it ever since then. And I like it because it fundamentally distills it down into forced distribution, but it simplifies it so that we can have a conversation. And when we're not here anymore, again, we can complicate the conversation around trusts and charitable remainder this and life insurance and islets and kind of, I call it the alphabet soup of planning. And it paralyzes people. And you simplified it to when we're not here, your money will go to one of three places, your heirs, charity, and the government. And right now, probably, you know, for a lot of our clients, it's half going to the government, half going to heirs. Is that what you want? And for a lot of our clients, it's not. So as we think about inheritance, talk to me about your thoughts about inheritance, because it's in part financial, but not necessarily. How do you think about that? Yeah, it is in part financial, but I've found after being in this industry for over 20 years, that the lasting legacies that thrive and endure, let's face it, Jared, that's what we're all hoping for, right? Is that the time and effort and sweat and energy we put into our vocations and our families and the the building of our resources are going to mean something and hopefully something positive. The overwhelming answer to that desire is on the, the human side of these conversations. And the financial side is fuel in the engine. Yeah. So I constantly urge families to pause and think about, you know, what trajectories are they aiming for? What destinations? You, like me, have been doing this for a long time, serving families. And I think it was probably about 10 years in my career where I started getting a little catch in my spirit that we were designing really elegant wealth transfer plans that could pass millions in highly tax efficient manner only to know that it was going to fall on the backs of maybe an unprepared next generation or a wounded yeah. next generation. Yeah. That makes me sad. So yeah, we started talking with clients about, first of all, what is the role of wealth? I think that's one of the key questions everybody needs to ask in your own life journey and in your heirs. And to your point, I think it doesn't necessarily create character. It's the soil from which those things grow. And so, as you mentioned, opportunities, experiences, possessions, there's only a very few categories that impact, is the word you used, that let's get to the heart of that. I think families should really think through that. Jeannie, I don't want to miss what you just said. I feel like I only captured about 60% of its depth. I feel like it was so deep, I didn't bunch it all up. So you just likened wealth to soil. Is that? That's right. It's the soil from Further which- unpack that so I can catch up with you. I feel like I'm talking to C.S. Lewis here or something. Okay, go. Oh my gosh. If I could only spend an hour talking to C.S. Lewis. There, there you go. All right, so wealth is like soil. Okay, explain that yeah. to me. So 
after years of hearing, you know, families talk about, I don't want my wealth to ruin my children, or they think about their wealth is going to be the savior and protect their children from all sorts of hardship. We really get realizing that it's not the wealth, it's the hero or the villain. Questions like how much is enough? What's going to be a blessing? What's going to be a curse? These are things families wrestle with and they should, Jared, they really should. The wealth in this word picture, the wealth is the soil, but the matriarch and patriarch are the farmers. Like what seeds are you planting in the soil? That's right. That's right. And so we need to design these estate plans so that we understand the proper role of wealth. It's not the hero or the villain. Got to debunk that. It's the soil where you have experiences. It provides for payment of experiences, opportunities, possessions. All of those lead to impact, right? So the wealth inheritance is the soil from which your next generation can grow character, experience. And my goal, I'm borrowing this from a a really good book I enjoyed called Entrusted by Howell and York. And that's a great book, but actually I'm quoting, paraquoting Russ Grossen in one of his books. The goal is to create a next generation that's productive and content, right? We want to be flourishing by being productive and content. The stuff won't necessarily do that. But the soil that wealth represents allows them to grow in their life experiences with that aim in mind. Ooh, that's going to be my favorite part of our conversation potentially. So thank you. Well, so I guess at a mechanics level here, kind of getting back to brass tacks, going from heart to head again. So donor advised funds are not as well known of as private foundations. People always think rich people have private foundations and they're both wonderful tools but used differently. So just at a high level, maybe compare, contrast what the benefits and or challenges or limitations might be between kind of those two vehicles, just from a planning perspective, high level. Absolutely. I'm glad you circle back around on that because it is important for people to understand. A metaphor I like to use, Jared, is like many of your listeners here today, I have more than one automobile in my garage, right? Yep. We were able to raise our children for 15 years in Colorado. And um, I have a souped up 15-year-old Jeep Cherokee. Actually, let's be honest, my husband does. Yes. Skid plates, quad four traction, winches. And we could go anywhere off-roading on that thing. It was awesome. We also have a tiny little fuel-efficient car that when we need to drive a thousand miles, you know, to come visit Oregon, we aren't going to be broke by the time we cross over the state line. So why do I use that metaphor? Well, private foundations, donor-advised funds, and something called a supporting organization function very similarly. They are give, grow, grant vehicles. You Mm. can give to them, enjoy a tax deduction. You can grow the assets that are in there in a tax-favored environment. And ultimately, you can send checks or grants to your favorite charities. And just like my automobiles, Jared, that have a steering wheel, a key, and a pedal, they operate similarly, but the engineering under the hood is dramatically different. And so don't Private foundations are fantastic, especially, you know, they do some things really well, but I like to call them the interstate driving. If you're putting cash and publicly traded securities in them, and you're going to invest in publicly traded securities, and you're going to send checks out, they're pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. But they are like operating your own company. So you need to have board meetings, you need to deal with succession planning. And so if you want the project side of running and operating your own charitable business, it's a great tool. Mm -hmm. But a donor advised fund is in many ways simpler, like literally, and keep in mind, Jared, 
I specialize in nonprofit law and have drafted many of these kinds of documents. And I chose to have a donor advice fund even before I worked at NCF because it's just so darn simple. Yeah. I can send online gifts. I don't have a company to run. I can go right on my phone. I can send checks to my favorite charity. I can pull down all kinds of reports about where my giving's going. And I just had all the fun of giving without the trouble of running a foundation. Now, Jared, I can still invite my kids in the process. We still have an annual family meeting because the family side of this, we're all still in the car together. It doesn't matter what engineering I'm using along the way. Love it. Yep. Yep. And also donor advice funds are better vehicles if you want to go off-roading, as I call it, in the area of complex gifts. So if you want to give something like a part of your company or real estate, or I was just on the phone this morning with intellectual property and another call this morning on oil and gas. Donor advice funds are better situated within the tax code law to receive those, hold them, and then allow the monetization, whether it's through profits or a future sale, to fund charitable granting. They're just different wiring under the hood. Absolutely. That's an important nuance in detail. So that we haven't totally hit on yet is this idea of a complex gift. Like, so typically we think when we give, a lot of people that are newer to generosity or maybe kind of integrating tax strategy into their giving goals, they'll start with giving cash. And yet cash represents such a small part of their balance sheet. It kind of could be a little bit limiting. And so there's the opportunity to give highly appreciated assets. There's the opportunity to gift prior to major transactions. And there's opportunities, I guess, for the sake of a word picture, rather than giving the fruit or the apples, we can give the apple tree so that year after year after year, the crop occurs outside of your taxable estate and income tax. And that can have some huge recurring income tax benefits as well. So I presume that you have maybe a couple of favorite giving stories. I mean, there's you've gotten to see all kinds of creative things gifted and met some incredible people along the way. You've probably talked to a couple hundred people a year about kind of giving goals and transactions and So do you have a favorite giving story that kind of comes to mind? Oh, you know, it's not a matter of having one. It's a matter of kind of sorting them through. We've got so many cool stories of people who've done really creative things like sell their real estate development, capture, you know, in a tax-free arrangement, capture all that, and then go do private equity investing inside the charitable vehicle. I mean, there's some really cool cutting edge we can do in there that, can generate millions of tax savings, Jared, for philanthropy and family, because they just were really smart about the way they, and you know, business owners are really smart about getting the edge on delivering their product or their service. This is just another way that I can see business owners coming alive when they can see that the bold are rewarded when they pursue going after leveraged opportunities. So those are fun stories, but To kind of combine what we were talking about earlier, the headspace and the heart space here, one story comes to mind of a family in the Northwest, actually, that I talked to for years. The first few times they give us a call, they were getting ready to sell a passive investment in a limited partnership, and they missed the opportunity from a timing perspective. And they'd already had a letter of intent in hand, and it was too late to do the gift of the asset, and they went ahead and gave cash after the sale. But After all those conversations, they said, you know, we've got our primary family company and it was a company that dad had started and two of the four children were working in it ever since they were wee little. 
And that's a common fact pattern, right, Jared? Some of the kids in and some of the kids not in the business. And that's always its own puzzle. Yeah. And mom and dad had done some gifting to the boys of shares in the company over time, but they had a couple of puzzles. One, you know, they did have a federal taxable estate, but the real driver was they recognized they've got kids outside the company and kids inside. So they didn't want to do all the gifting to the kids inside and not have a, in their mind, a fair inheritance to the children who weren't in the company. So there was some equalization type concerns going on. And then they had some work ethic concerns, not because they were worried about their boys, but they believed in sweat equity and skin in the game. Mm-hmm. So I love that conversation, Jared, because it kind of wrapped in some of the things we were talking about earlier. It was very deliberate about the impact that this business succession plan was going to have in furthering their family values and their family culture. So what they did is they gifted some shares in their company. This happened to be an S corporation, which you can do that without violating your S corp election. We worked with their accountant, their financial advisors, and their business advisors to do a long-term projection on the business cash flow. And in tranches over time, they would gift shares of the company. And then when and if the boys, while we were an owner of the S Corp, it was non-voting and the profit distributions we would receive as a shareholder would go in the parents' donor advice fund. So that was pretty cool. So they gave, we were able to take the profit distributions to fund their philanthropy And in doing so, we cut the taxes on that, Jared, by 60% compared to what mom and dad would have owned on that tranche. Six zero. If mom and dad owned those shares, they were paying taxes like normal. Yeah. By giving those shares to their donor advice fund, at NCF in particular with our structure, we were able to cut that tax bill by 60% on the shareholder income every year. The last part of that is that from an estate planning perspective, The boys could make a fair market value offer to purchase those shares. You can't do that with a private foundation. But after the gift, the boys could make an offer and NCF was willing to sell to them on an installment sale treatment. Oh, wow. So they could use the company profit distributions to pay on the note. They got the shares over time and the purchase price went into the multifamily generosity fund where the kids in the company and outside the company and mom and dad have a family meeting and enjoy giving the dollars away. So to your point earlier, Jared, yes, it was about the finances. I mean, millions of tax savings leveraged in this, but the win for me was think about how this served the family culture and furthered the family values. Wonderful story. In one of the earlier episodes here with Greg Sherwood, we spent some time talking about a word picture that I think actually applies to this story and maybe this topic of planning. It's around priority management. And as a planner, a lot of the time, one priority kind of competes often against another priority. And so it's kind of, how do you say no to good things so that you can say yes to great, but at the same time, still try to make room for the good ones. And so the word picture that he shares, and I think is worthy and applicable here is to teach students this principle, a professor put a glass jar on the table in front of the classroom and he put in small rocks, medium rocks, and big rocks. The lid wouldn't close. And so he poured it all out and put in the big rocks first, the medium rocks and the small rocks, shook it, and then the lid closed. And the point of the story was, it's not necessarily that the priorities were wrong. It's the order in which we approached them. And what's cool about the donor advised fund or the supporting org is a lot of the time it helps us navigate those complicated trade-offs that as a planner 
we're trying to help clients accomplish. Equal's not fair, fair's not equal. And how do we maximize wealth while minimizing taxes? And how do we have impact within our own families, but also the communities in the world that made it possible? And it's a really cool tool to accomplish so many broad objectives a client might have. It is that. It's a great convener within a family culture to get people excited about the impact their family resources are going to have. I mean, it takes work, Jared, right? I mean, this isn't a Norman Rockwell photograph for most families. It takes work. But over time, we can get families working in the same direction and to really provide a platform for patients to come alive when done well. Yes. That's a podcast for another day, I might when add. When done well. Well, I guess going back to your metaphor uh, of wealth being soil, like how to be a good farmer. Well, so a couple other topics, I guess. Give me the two cents, the skinny on supporting orgs. They sound awesome. I haven't had the opportunity to work intimately with them, but they seem to kind of really align well with kind of the entrepreneurial spirit of the clients that Delap has the opportunity to work with. Very fun. Yes. So supporting organizations are fabulous tools. And I'm going to... I love using metaphors. So, and so do you. You have some fantastic. Yes, I do. I get teased for it all the time, but they work. That's why we're friends. I'm going to throw down one on the automobile and a Reese's peanut butter cup here for you. Yeah. So, the supporting organization is kind of the perfect hybrid vehicle, using my examples earlier, Mm -hmm. where you've got the interstate driving private foundation that has a different treatment under the tax law. It's its own independent nonprofit entity. It has to file its own tax return. You know, there's just a lot that goes on there. The donor advice fund is an account inside another nonprofit that retains some advisory privileges. The supporting organization is the hybrid vehicle. It technically is a separate tax exempt entity with its own board, its own investment policy, its own grant making policy. However, it exists in the business world, your your audience is going to get this, Jared. It's like a wholly owned downstream subsidiary to a parent company. Mm-hmm. So in the tax world, we call that a type one supporting organization that exists to support the work of a parent charity. And because of that, Jared, it gets all the great tax advantage that can sometimes trip up a private foundation. But it gives you that hybrid experience of still having your family board, your family investment policies, that kind of thing. So It's kind of the best of both worlds. If there are aspects you like about a private foundation or a donor advised fund, it can kind of give you a a middle ground experience. The Reese peanut butter cup. Why don't people talk about these things as frequently as they might? The fact is, Jared, supporting organizations have been around for decades and decades. When I first started practicing law in the very early 90s, I actually drafted a handful of these, but they tended to park underneath an operating charity. Like I created one for Notre Dame University and I had a family who loved Catholic education. And so they wanted to support the local or the Catholic high school and Notre Dame University. So we created a supporting organization to those entities, but all of the proceeds, Jared, had to go to fund those charities. Does yeah. that make sense? Oh, yeah. So yeah. all of your families on the line want to lock and load for one charity. Mm. So we see peanut butter cup. We're taking chocolate and peanut butter and making something really special here. So you've got the supporting organization world, which is the chocolate. You got the donor advice fund world, which is you know the peanut butter and you put them together. And now you have a supporting organization underneath a grant making charity. And who and so doesn't like Reese's? Reese's peanut make. butter cups, that, those are great. Yeah. That's fun. Well, yep. again, 
there's too much to cover on any of these topics, but the NCF website is robust with content. We're working really vigilantly on our website and we actively train our team on the topic. I spend a lot of time in the donor advised fund space. It's created tremendous opportunities for our clients. So I guess the NCF website's a great resource. DELAP's website and DELAP Wealth Advisory's website's a great resource. Reach out to me or any of your contacts at DELAP because I think it's one of those things, whether it's now or later, these vehicles have a place within your overall plan. It's a great tool to put on the planning belt, so to speak. Well, I guess transitioning then to how do we plan right now? Did you know that there's an election pending right now? Would you have known that? that. (laughs) I don't know. It's crazy, actually. Tristan Harris has all kinds of research around what's going on with technology. So many of the places that we spend time now, we don't actually have to pay for. Listeners have heard me talk about this before, but you didn't pay anything for YouTube. You didn't pay anything for Google. You don't pay anything for Facebook. You don't pay anything for all this social media stuff. But it's because that they're able to monetize your attention, right? And so they have cognitive scientists that are looking at how do we hijack people's attention And so it's interesting that our emotions reach our brain 350% faster than our logic reaches our prefrontal cortex. So the amygdala is that much faster in its reception. So we're just perpetually being triggered emotionally. The headlines are scary, right? What's going on in the market? What's going on with the Fed? What's going on politically? What's going on with the social movement? I find it kind of frustrating because I think it's so distracting and detrimental to people's lives and obviously the quality of their decisions. So I think right now with the AFR, the applicable federal rate as low as it is, the federal exemption for state tax as high as it is, across most asset classes, you're at or near or above all-time record highs. And the income tax rate as low as it as we've seen it in recent decades, it's the perfect fact pattern for one of the most unprecedented planning moments ever, whether it's transitioning wealth to the next generation or locking in some incredible charitable goals one has. But in the midst of all of that, there's so much uncertainty. What's going on with whatever it might be, fill in the blank. Have you had success helping to reframe uncertainty as inevitable? Like change is constant, but how do we make decisions with some level of confidence to take advantage of a moment in time like we have right now? I love that question, Jared. And with so many of our listeners today being entrepreneurial in nature, we intuitively get it in the business world, right? The whole idea of blue ocean and leaning in and recognizing that market disruptions are actually fantastic opportunities to capitalize on advantages that aren't necessarily there years from now when things are a little more stabilized. So the brave and the bold lean in in times like this. And as you mentioned, the logic versus the emotion, I mean, can you just reiterate that again? The lowest income tax rates, the highest estate tax exemptions were actually up. And yet most of us are bombarded with this sense of let's just wait. And so I would encourage all of your listeners, lean in. We now have an opportunity under the CARES Act to be able to, just in the philanthropic piece, give up to 100% of your adjusted gross income this year. And a lot of people don't know about that. Yeah. Taking advantage of, even if your business is down in value, Jared, so some people are on the line thinking, well, great for everybody else. I'm just trying to keep the doors open. Mm -hmm. Well, this is an estate planning opportunity. The market has compressed the value of your company. If you want to move it to estate planning trust or directly to kids, 
this is the opportunity. So I strongly encourage people to reach out to their team here at DeLab and think through how can I make the most of what I would call these this disruptive time so that when I look back five years from now, I can say I was bold and brave and smart and not caught back on my heels. That's awesome. All right. So I'm going to put you on the spot now, throw you a curveball that you didn't know was coming. We'll see how we do here. I want to introduce a concept to our community called five for six. And so in the remaining five minutes, I want you and I to talk about how a donor advised fund could create six figures of value for a family. So in five minutes, we're going to talk about a six figure idea. And I think we can do it a couple of different ways. So maybe we go back and forth and you'll probably last a lot longer than I do. So when we think about the tax benefits of a donor advised fund, we have the opportunity to give appreciated assets. So if we bought the Google stock for $100,000 and now it's worth $300,000, we can gift the $300,000 of Google stock and get that that as a write-off, a charitable gift of $300,000 and not have to realize the capital gains. And so we can do that sort of stuff on an annual recurring basis. So it's gifting appreciated securities to a DAF donor advised fund DAF that would create benefit. It's not just a one and done. You can continue. We like to rebalance portfolio rather than selling high. We like to give high. And rather than giving cash, we like to rebalance with cash. So that's one idea. What's another potential tax goodie of a donor advised fund for somebody who has giving goals? You are ringing my competitive belts here. So my bells. So one idea I have is how to double your cash giving without touching your checkbook. Ooh. How that sound? So if I have a million dollar AGI, adjusted gross income, and I'm talking to a taxpayer who gives 10% of their income to charity every year, that would be $100,000 of cash giving typically. Mm -hmm. If we go over to their balance sheet, Jared, and we find a stock position or a real estate position that's worth, let's say, $300,000, okay? Mm -hmm. When I haven't touched their checkbook, they can give non-voting shares in their company worth $300,000 to their donor advised fund. They'll enjoy a tax deduction on that. Let's say just for easy math, I know in Oregon it's worse, in Seattle it's better, Washington it's better, but let's say it's a 40% tax rate. So you've got a $300,000 asset gift saving 40% in taxes on your income. So three times four is 12. That's 12% of your income that you would have had to pay in taxes that you can now keep in your checkbook because of the charitable deduction for your stock gift. So what's happening in the checkbook? You gave 100,000 in cash as your 10% charitable giving. You've enjoyed a 12% AGI tax savings because you gave some stock. And out of that, you could write another 10% cash giving to a donor advised fund to bank for charities you love to support. We've essentially doubled your cash giving without touching your checkbook by being smart with asset-based giving and the deductions that that yields. I like that. That's well-played. Asset-based giving. So I'm going to probably end up getting tapped out way before you do, and we're going to probably run out of time. So here's another fact pattern. So you're a business owner here in Oregon. You have a $10 million business and you're thinking about selling it. But because you have almost no basis in your business at this point, it's mostly just gain. And so, but before the transaction, before you actually go to market and get a letter of intent, you gift 10% of your company. So roughly $10 million. And let's say that you're 55 years old. Well, now we have a million dollars that's outside of your estate and we can grow it and grant it, right? But it's also outside of your estate. So it functions as an estate tax freeze. And here in the state of Oregon, 
the estate tax kicks in at a million dollars. And so everything above that can quickly escalate up to a 16% rate. So if we just think that over the next 30 years, a 55-year-old that lives to age 85, if they would ordinarily, their balance sheet would be growing at 7% a year, that's going to grow to, we just saved, we've reduced the estate. We actually, we positioned the growth. We didn't reduce the estate. I like to call it a growth location strategy. We located the growth in the charitable account so that we didn't have to pay the income tax or we grew it tax efficiently, we gave it tax efficiently, but the estate tax implication just from the state of Oregon alone would be $1.2 million. So that's a five for seven right there. You know, We're talking about some incredible opportunities here with the Donor Advised Fund. Any other... Yeah, I'll share that your example there. About? Yeah, so I would highlight on your example, I love the way you repositioned it is that the inheritance is not only the personal money the kids can enjoy, but it's it's the charitable inheritance that they yeah. can go their world with. So it's not lost, it's just repositioned is what you called it. My idea would be to just to call out and highlight your fact pattern. You talked about giving shares before the sale happened. Yeah. Um, and you highlighted the estate tax benefit I would say that that million dollar gift, if it had zero basis, just saved in the state of, in your guys, you have 9.9 yeah. state on that. And then 23.8 federal, when you do cap gain plus net investment income tax potential, you've just saved a third. I'm obviously averaging yeah, here. There you go. In capital gains taxes. Ooh, Ooh, that's so, I guess this this one segment could be the five for seven, a five minute conversation for seven figures worth of ideas. Yeah. So, we're always overachievers. We try to. I love to, it. I yeah. love it. We're like tag team this one, tax ninjas, you and me. So, hey, Jeannie McMains, thank you so much for our conversation today. Really appreciated you just taking the time to share your head and heart with our community about how generosity can be part of the plan and deeply integrated into some tax savvy strategies. Jared, it's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right, thanks.